The Late Morning Program with Nam Ras Podcast. Hare Krishna, everyone. You're listening to the Late Morning Program with Namras, the number one Hare Krishna podcast in the world. I'm here. Very excited to talk to the spiritual scientist, Chaitanya Chan Prabhu himself. Uh, Prabhu, thank you so much for joining me. Hare Krishna. Wonderful to be here with you. I think uh, in every tradition, there is the Adi, the founder of various things. So I think you're the Adi, Adi Samstapak of the podcasts. In our tradition. Oh, so, Krishna. Thank you. Thank I'm you. happy to be a humble follower in your footsteps. No, no, Prabhu. You're, you're doing amazing things. So, Chaitanya, for those of you who don't know, Chaitanya Jaran Prabhu has um, uh, an amazing website where he does daily Gita uh, realizations that he shares himself, uh, that he writes himself. We'll, we'll talk about that later. He also has his own podcast called The Monks Podcast, who we're very, you know, lots of amazing Krishna conscious material and content. Uh, we'll talk about that as well. But first of all, I'd love to talk to Prabhu about his um, personal life in the sense of how did he come? How did you come into Krishna consciousness? How did you get in contact with devotees? Okay. Thank you. For, first of all, thank you for inviting me here. Yes. And it's an honor and a pleasure to be with you. So, Likewise. Uh, thank you. So broadly, as far as my Krishna consciousness is concerned, I'd say there are three strands of thought or three strands in my life which came together. The first was I was born and brought up in India. And India is a very academically competitive society. So where the goal of a student's life is to be first in class, do well academically, and of course, come to America in future. So I grew up with that and I was always among the bright students. I was among the top students, but somehow I was never the top, never number one. Mm. And throughout my junior school, high school, and then college, that was something which was always a great dissatisfaction for me. And then I gave my GRE exam, just for coming to America for postgrad studies. And I always liked English as a language. One of my hobbies in my childhood was just to pick up a dictionary and memorize words. So in general, in, <laughs> in general, Indians are always good at math and analytical ability, but it's English that they falter. So I did quite well in my GRE at that time. You know, I got 2350 out of 2400. I was the first in the state of Maharashtra. I was the first, not just in my college, I was the first in the history of my college. So it was, in one sense, all my dreams come true. And yet, after a few moments of Yahoo and elation, I soon realized that just looking at the score sheet doesn't give any satisfaction. So the satisfaction comes when people congratulate. And then after some time, it grows old. And somehow it happened that three of my friends, one after another, they all forgot to congratulate me. <laughs> and it, it just, I was with them. And when the first person didn't congratulate me, I was a little annoyed. 
second person didn't congratulate me i was uh, i was irritated the third person didn't congratulate me i was enraged but at the same time i didn't look i want to look pathetic i think why are you not congratulating me but then somehow it struck me at that time it was as if i look at myself from above myself not a actual but conceptually i say hey, wait a minute before this gre achievement i could just interact with people and get along with my life but now instead of this gre achievement making me happy it has made me more dependent on others for my happiness mm. that wow. and unless people congratulate me i'm not happy so it struck me is this what i want to do in my life in future i could give another exam i could crack it i could uh, i could become a scientist and i could get awards and but i would always be dependent on others for my happiness so that's what started me thinking is there something else is there some form of happiness which is not dependent on externals wow. and that's that's when one of my friends uh, introduced me to the bhagavad gita he himself had got the bhagavad gita and started reading it so when i read it i i used to like i used to like reading books so i had read other bhagavad gitas before but when somehow when i read this bhagavad gita i was probably at a receptive moment in my life and when i came to 622 in the gita where krishna says yam labdhuha cha param labham manyate nadikam tata yasmin sthitona dukhena guruna api vichalyate he says that having achieved this there is nothing more to achieve one becomes one doesn't crave for anything else and having achieved this no matter what dissatisfaction one what distress one experiences no matter how great one is not disturbed by that so when i read that i felt this is real achievement in life this is actually describing the state of samadhi the state of absorption in the divine and i said this is what really i should be striving for because this if i achieve then there will be real happiness so that was one very significant impetus so you could say uh, there are people who become frustrated with failure i became frustrated with success mm-hmm. and <laughs> wow. so and then so the, was that friend that gave you the bhagavad gita was he a devotee already or was he also oh yeah he was already a devotee and he is a good friend of mine even now oh really so. wonderful <laughs> and yeah. so did you eventually like you join the temple yeah i'll come to that so that was yeah. as i said this one strand of thought so this sure. was in 1996 basically i was introduced to the bhagavad gita and then i was in third year of my engineering at that time so simultaneously i always had a lot of faith in the power of knowledge to transform so one aspect was of course scientific knowledge and i saw how scientific knowledge had transformed society i would love to read about the biographies of scientists and especially not just scientific discoveries but how they made those discoveries so i felt knowledge and education could transform society and i had this urge within me that i wanted to share knowledge so while i was studying engineering i joined a social welfare organization and they did various activities <clears throat> so i used to go to a nearby slum behind my college a uh, economically deprived zone and then there i would teach offer free tuitions as a part of that welfare organization to the kids in the slum and i used to teach them various subjects english history math and we became friends 
and after some time those kids started opening up that most of them were from dysfunctional homes and uh, the biggest problem was alcohol alcohol induced violence the fathers would usually drink and when they would drink then there was domestic violence thereafter now when i met those fathers they were actually quite nice people i felt they were they were grateful that i was coming and teaching their children but then these kids told me that once they drink it is like they become a different person so at that time i talked with the uh, uh, authorities of this welfare organization and there was already that thought going on so we decided instead of just offering education we could also invite some other people who could help people get off alcohol so i was not the speaker for that but i was a connector for that and one of my friends also was doing something similar he was doing it for a village and so we started working in that and my friend worked very hard for that area and he used to, so i used to go to this particular small area within the city and he used to go to a nearby village so we did help a lot of people to get off alcohol at least alcoholism we can say uh, and we're quite happy about it but one evening my friend came back crestfallen i asked him what happened he said there had been the local political elections municipal elections and one of the candidates in order to woo the uh, woo the electorate woo the voters he had brought about two truckloads of free alcohol for everyone oh my goodness and not only the fathers but even their kids had drunk so that was like a big setback for us and then so we started thinking that through education we are opening doors for people but it seems that there is something inside people that prevents them from walking ahead from taking those doors and walking through those doors so that was something which quite disappointed me and at the same time i as i was observing the world around me that it was there's one student who was like in some sense my hero he was about 3 years senior to me and he had been the university topper throughout all his 4 years the university and he had got at that time the highest paying job in the history of our college but he was also a chain smoker and in 6 months after he got that job he was diagnosed with advanced lung cancer and within a year he passed away so i talk with him so it's you know he could solve i i did electronics and telecommunications engineering so he could solve uh, engineering problems so brilliantly hmm. so i just somehow couldn't figure it out that if he can understand how br- easy how if he is brilliant enough to understand this why can't he understand that he is actually courting disease and death by smoking somehow he said that i can't think unless i smoke so so what struck me from this incident was that that this something self destructive within us it's it is uh, it goes beyond the educational boundaries that is not that education is an is a protector against the self destructive force within and again when i read the bhagavad gita in 336 arjuna asks you know what is it that impels one to self destructive actions atakena prayuktoyam papam charati purushah anichchana pivarshnaya baladivanyojita so i force as if so i said yeah this is the question 
which I have also been having. And uh, it's not that I was just talking about people being alcoholics or chain smokers. No, I didn't have any gross vices, but I was also infamous for having a short temper. So really? I started realizing that this, this force, to a, it may be a, to a greater degree than others, but to a smaller degree, the self-destructive force is there within me also. So that struck me. It took me some time to understand uh, what the Gita's answer to that question was and how that answer was applicable. But then when I was introduced to Bhakti and I started practicing the process of Bhakti, especially studying philosophy and or trying to live that philosophy, I found that it just uh, led to a transformation. That my own anger went away. One of my room partners who was in the hostel, he was just sliding towards alcoholism. And he also started practicing Krishna consciousness, started practicing Bhakti Yoga, and he just gave it all up. So I realized that this could be the way ahead, that this is the kind of knowledge that is really required in society. That education, so nowadays the way I put it is that you know, scientific education can make the outer world better. Spiritual education can make the inner world better. Mm. So, and we need both to improve the world and improve ourselves. So scientific education gives us control over externals. It is spiritual education which gives us control over internals. So that's, so that's the time when I felt that, that this is what I should really focus on. That I would like to study this and share this. So that was also a significant impetus for, uh, for choosing to dedicate my life to studying and sharing the wisdom of the Bhagavad Gita. Uh, I have a question regarding, because you, you see that science and Krishna consciousness, sometimes devotees have even left Krishna consciousness or devote, or people are not even attract, are not attracted to Krishna consciousness because it's from, from their perspective, it's not scientific in the sense of it's a lot of like revelation. Like you, you know how they say the, the, the taste of the pudding is in the eating. So people, we how so we say, oh, try Krishna consciousness and see how you feel. And think, but that's not scientific per se. So what was it about Krishna consciousness and about the Bhagavad Gita which made you kind of become, uh, maybe not unscientific, but kind of like what you were like, oh, this is this is cool, but it it kind of goes against science in in some sort of way. Yeah. I would say two things. It was, first of all, I I grew up in a culture where I knew I'd heard about the soul. And of course, we had, we used to worship in our homes. I was right. born in the Brahmin family. So that way it was there. But I had never heard any logical, rational explanation for the concepts of soul or for the concept of God. So now the uh, there, when I encountered devotee scientists who were doing research to present uh, Krishna, the wisdom of the Bhagavad Gita scientifically, it struck me that this is amazing. So the evidence for, I won't go so far as to use the word proof, because proof is something which ultimately every individual has to decide. But there is strong evidence for of past life memories and near-death experiences and other things which, which points to the existence of a soul. In fact, later on, I have I have written a book on this topic called Demystifying Reincarnation. So the 
point was that I found the scientific evidence like a new vista of knowledge. Although I considered myself reasonably well-read, somehow I had never encountered this. And yes, there are aspects of Krishna consciousness that are not scientific, but I would say it's not. It's more than that. They are not unscientific. They are trans-scientific. So it's not that they are against science. They are above science. So let me just uh, share a screen, the simple sure. diagram over here. So this is is a diagrammatic depiction. Now, if you consider the wisdom of the Bhagavad Gita and the Bhagavatam, there are parts of it which, which agree with science. There are parts of it which contradict science and there are parts of it which transcend science. Now, this is just a schematic representation, not actually, uh, you could say, representative of the size. If we overall study the Bhagavad, study the scriptures, we'll find that what agrees with science is very small, what contradicts science is very small, what transcends science is the majority. And this transcendent, transcending science, that is what is critical. So that the science can provide us means. Now, you want to do this? How can you do that? Say right now we have a means by which we are talking all the way in opposite parts of the almost opposite parts of the world. Yeah. Hmm? <laughs> science yeah. provides us means, yeah. but spirituality provides us meaning. What is the meaning of life? So these are two different domains. There are some overlaps, but for some people, the contradictory parts seem to be, they become too highlighted in people's minds. And that's because they often look at the rituals that are involved there in, in religion. I can't, I can't believe this. I can't do this. But beyond that, there is a huge amount of philosophy. And if you understand the philosophy, then things become relatively easier to practice. So, so my understanding is that spirituality is also in its own way like a science. So it is a science of a different nature. It is not science in the way we normally consider it. So there's, I have written about this in also books. In science, we have theory and we have experiment. Similarly, in spirituality, we have philosophy and we have religion. So just as in science, the theory postulates that maybe things work in this particular way. When Newton saw fruit, uh, apple falling, he postulated maybe there is a, something called a force which attracts part particles of matter to each other. And then he did experiments. So when the experiment is done, okay, an apple fell, does another fruit fall, does a stone fall, and not just in UK, does it fall in France, and does it fall in America, does it fall in various parts of the world? So that is the experiment. So similarly, in spirituality, there's philosophy. The philosophy tells us about the nature of reality. And in, uh, if, in fact, the word philosophy itself means philo, philo is love, so force is truth, so lover of truth or seeker of truth. So philosophy is the search for truth. And religion, while many people equate it with rituals, religion is actually a set of practices that are meant to enable us to give realization of the philosophy. So this is what Krishna talks about in 9.2 in the Bhagavad Gita. Raja Vidya Raja Guhyam Pavitram Idamuttamam Pratyakshavagamam Dharmyam Susukham Kartumavyam So Pratyakshavagamam Dharmyam So he says that 
I will give you the knowledge. So that knowledge, Raja Vidya, Raja Guhim, that is philosophy. I'll give you the philosophy. But then he says, along with that, I will give you the process. That which will purify you. And by this Pratyakshavagamam, you'll get realization. And what is the essence of the realization? It is Susukam. You will find joy, fulfillment coming within you. And how do we know that the fulfillment is there? It is Bhakti Pareshanubhav Virakti Ranyatracha. How anybody can claim I am inter internally contented. But the test would be how much are you dependent on external sources of happiness? So if I say I'm internally fulfilled and I have to smoke and I have to drink and I have to do a hundred other things, I can't, uh, I, get, I can't live without watching TV. Uh, I can't live without, uh, without my I periodic, can't. whatever. Sorry. But yes, sorry. With your, without one's own, one's phone or something. You yeah. Live so if, yeah. Without, if I can't live without playing video games on my phone or surfing my social media, right. then that does indicate that I'm not internally content. So yeah. in this sense, Krishna consciousness, I wouldn't say I wouldn't say it's science in the normal sense of the word, because coins often science is associated with with a naturalistic approach. We look at material phenomena and we try to explain material phenomena. But in the sense of two things, rationality and repeatability, that the basic philosophy of Krishna consciousness is rational, that there is a non-material essence to us, in our, that, our, that is our core. And that there is the ultimate reality with whom we have a loving relationship. And the basic tenets of Krishna consciousness are rational. And then repeatability. How is that rational about our relationship with Krishna? How is that rational? How can that, okay. that be expressed rationally? Okay, so we could put it this way that <clears throat> we all have a longing to love. And not just love, but love forever. Most of the movie, a significant portion of the movies and novels are about romance. And most romance, at least it aspires to be forever, happily ever after, as we say. Now, if we consider from a purely logical perspective, that there is no happily ever after. Because even if we say we have a happy relationship, it's not going to last forever. So the question comes up from a biological or sociological perspective. Where do we get a desire for which there is obviously no fulfillment in nature? Say to give an example, say if somebody is living in a remote African village and one day uh, uh, that, that, that village, that tribe has no connection with the world, no internet, no social media. They're just living in their own universe. And one day this child, a boy goes to his mother and asks, Mom, mom, I want a pizza. Now, the first question the mother would ask is, what's a pizza? And even if she knows what a pizza, pizza, pizza is, she says, how did you come to know about the pizza? Because there's nothing in his environment that would gi even give him knowledge, leave alone the desire. So, similarly, there is nothing in our environment which lasts forever. So then how do we get the desire to love something forever or love someone forever? So the desire for love is understandable if from, a, from a purely reductionistic, materialistic perspective. The desire to love forever. 
how do we understand that where does it come from so if a desire has no source in the external world then it suggests that the only source of the desire would be from the internal world that means there is something within us that longs for everlasting love so this desire is not biological this is not sociological this is a spiritual desire within us and now we could debate whether this desire is actually going to be fulfilled or not whether there is ultimate reality who can reciprocate love with us these are matters of debate so it's not i won't say when i say krishna consciousness is rational i'm not saying that it is it is rationally rationally uh, irrefutable hmm? because ultimately as i said this is different people can argue for rationality from different perspective but it is it is rationally intelligible that we have a longing to live forever and a longing to love forever the longing to live forever suggests that there is a core to us that is eternal and the longing to love forever suggests that there is a object of love that is eternal and now what exactly these are and how all that relationship is to be developed that is a whole different dimension of knowledge so in that the basic tenets of krishna consciousness in terms of the existence of the soul in terms of the ultimate object of love in terms of the philosophy of karma explaining uh uh you know one of the things that also the i didn't go into third strand of thought if you want i'll go into that but let me complete this that the rationality and repeatability repeatability means that it's not linearly repeatable it's not that say if i not like gravity if i take this and drop this it's going to fall if i take this it's going to fall so it's very linearly predictably repeatable but in krishna consciousness because it involves individuals and individual consciousness it's not that predictably repeatable but overall if somebody practices bhakti yoga they experience inner contentment they experience outer capacity for distancing themselves from unhealthy habits unhealthy behaviors the exact pace may vary the exact change may vary but that is something which i've seen across the world people experiencing that so in that those terms in terms of rationality and repeatability we can say krishna consciousness is scientific in its own way okay very interesting thank you for expressing that tell us a little bit about then what happened uh, how you joined the temple and all that okay yeah so maybe i'll just come back to the third part so i said first part was my own achievements second yeah. was my social contribution contributions a third was my relationships you know that i when i was in my school uh, uh i was among the toppers in my 10th school 10th standard so when i was one i had polio so i was just walking one day and uh, i just fell fell down and i never could walk normally after that so Uh, apparently i was given the polio vaccine but the doctor who was supposed to give the vaccine he we were living in a remote part of maharashtra so his his fridge broke down or something like that happened and the vaccine dose was not proper so basically i ended up getting now now that can be a like a in today's world about vaccination it can be a 
inflammatory point anyway <laughs> but anyway i don't want to get into that issue i yeah. never really thought about it from that perspective but basically i got polio and i couldn't walk normally uh, fortunately i had very loving parents and my parents decided that they will do everything possible to help me have a normal childhood and to take care of me and to try to of course heal me they tried various things nothing really healed the polio but they took extreme care of me they decided we will not have any other children for at least 10 more years till he is grown up and so uh, when my parents would talk with um, with with relatives and other acquaintances so this topic would come up then they would say that you know i was since my childhood i was quite good at studies good at language and math so my relatives and parents would talk and they would say that you know what he lacks in physical ability he has an intellectual ability so what god has not given him in physical ability god has given him an in intellectual ability so when i would hear that i would think who is this being god who has such absolute control over my life you know he decides what to give and what to take <laughs> so so i was a small child but the, at that time but then i grew up and then <clears throat> when i was in 10th standard at that time my mother got blood cancer advanced leukemia and we detected very late so she passed away within one month after the detection so that was a big shock for me my father used to have a tra- was a traveling job so as mostly i was connected with my mother so that started making me think what is going on in life you know, that we form relationships i was naturally very attached to my mother and it just uh, it was quite shattering for me at that time so that's when i although i used to read a lot that's when i started reading philosophical books and then so when i was reading the bhagavatam so i was introduced to krishna bhakti and then when i was reading the bhagavatam at that time i read in the fourth canto uh, dhruva maharaj's mother says to him that whatever love i can offer you uh, lord vishnu can offer you millions of times of more love millions of mothers like me cannot offer you as much love as lord vishnu can so that struck me very much because still that time sometimes when we have the presentation of krishna conscious philosophy it can be very world rejecting so for example one of the past times which i had heard and i found very disturbing that was the past time chitraketu where he says which mother which father and it sounded very heartless to me that okay you may say okay i may have had many mothers and many fathers i didn't deny the philosophy yes i could have had many mothers and many fathers but i couldn't deny what my parents had done for me especially uh, so i just felt that it was very dismissive of the extent of sacrifice that they had done for me so when i read the fourth canto so it it really helped me reconcile so when we say the world and its pleasures and love and relationships are all temporary no that doesn't mean that they are false it doesn't mean that they are zero no people when when our family members take care of us lovers when there is affection between friends it is real no because why because again from a if is rational perspective when druva's druva's mother is telling him that lord vishnu can offer you millions of times more love than what can offer if her love is zero millions of times of zero is also zero so when she is saying millions of times what it means is her love is not zero her love is real and lord vishnu's love is far far more so i felt that 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 helped me to make a sense of a lot of things and i felt that 
Now, this is the relationship I want to develop. So that was one of the main reasons. So this that, that particular experience of, you could say, the temporality of uh, uh, relationships that had a significant effect on me. Of course, I still am well connected with my father and my brother. And we, we do have good relationship. But overall, I felt that this is this developing this eternal relationship and trying to help others develop that eternal relationship. That is what I want to do as the priority of my life. So I completed my engineering in 1998. I worked in a software company. I had an opportunity to come to America. At that time, I had a maternal uncle who had his own company. And he wanted me to come and uh, maybe be a successor or whatever in future. But uh, I disappointed him and a lot of people at that time. So I, that is in 1999, I, oh, wow. I joined ISKCON as a brahmachari. And then since then, I have been studying and sharing the Bhagavad Gita and other Bhakti wisdom texts. Wow, 1999. And then so you stayed for 10 years in the ashram. And then you decided to, how did you come about where you came to the West? And now you've been, you've been spending so much time in America, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. That's uh, so when I was in, in Pune, one of my main services was basically uh, answering difficult questions. When I was, because I was quite a logical person, when I was introduced to Krishna consciousness, also I would ask a lot of questions to people. In fact, that was one of the reasons I started my monks podcast also. I love to discuss philosophy and ask questions. Sure. So because I asked a lot of questions, I got a lot of understanding and I would answer questions. So I, I would try to answer questions from a rational, logical perspective. I have another website called The Spiritual Scientist, where I've answered almost about 10,000 questions on different subjects in audio and some of them are transcriptions. So that was my main service. So I would travel in India, uh, go to mainly various youth centers and youth. Uh, many young people would have difficult questions, which other preachers may find difficult to understand. I would try to answer them. So then in, I like also was writing. Like you would do debates and things? Not exactly debates, but it was more of students who had come for programs. I see. And at the end of, say, a course. So after a course would get over, so the local preachers would do the course. Yeah. But after the course was over, there are always people who have some unanswered questions. So they, at the end of the course, they would put a QA session for me. And I would visit and I would do the QA session. I may not do the whole course because I was traveling various places, but I would do. So my classes would be short class and long question answers like that. Right. So... So that was one of my main services, basically uh, giving a rational explain, rational presentation of bhakti wisdom. Then I was also writing, and in 2006-2007, when His Holiness Radhanath Maharaj, who is my spiritual master, published Journey Home. So at that time, he had given me that book to go through before it was published. He said, tell me what you think about it. So he had given it to several of his uh, uh, disciples. I was fortunate, although I was quite young at that time in Krishna consciousness. So I told Maharaj that Maharaj, the stories and everything is so dramatic, so thrilling. But what struck me the most about this was the tone. He said, you are not speaking in this book like a teacher speaking to a student or a guru speaking to a disciple. You are The whole book is written in the mood of a, of a seeker sharing with other seekers. So Maharaj appreciated that. And Maharaj said, yes, this is the tone you need 
for reaching to Western audiences. And if you can also learn to write in this tone, you'll also be able to reach to Western audiences and India is also becoming Westernized. So you'll be able to start reaching to Indians. So from that time, so that uh, that interaction with Maharaj sowed the seeds for me. So I said, what exactly is when he says this tone, why did he adopt this tone and what, why does it need it for Western audiences? So that's the time I started getting interested. So I started reading everything I could get hands on, did it my devotees for Western audiences. Then I started looking at Christian teachers, Buddhist teachers, Advaitic teachers, how they were presenting. So basically one of the main differences that struck me is that Eastern societies, India, China, Russia, all of them are still significantly hierarchical. So if somebody has an official position of authority, there is a significant amount of respect towards authority. And then, okay, you learn. So actually in one sense, when you encounter authority, you begin with faith and the authority doesn't seem reasonable, then there is doubt. But on the other hand, in the West, you could say, especially if somebody in the position of authority, especially religious authority, it is a part of a religious institution. So the default attitude is doubt. And then you have to earn faith. You have to earn faith, actually. So among various things, this struck me that the Western society is much more egalitarian. And that's why that tone, not of uh, not of like, instructing, but sharing, that's so essential for reaching out to Western audience. So then uh, around 2014, so 2007, 2008, I started doing the study. I continued my outreach in India, my studies and speaking in whatever way I could. But in 2014, so from 2010, 2011, I was getting invitations to, to travel outside India. But 2014 was the first year I actually uh, started traveling. I got the blessings of senior devotees of my spiritual master and other senior Vaishnavas. And since then I started coming and I got a fairly good response to the talks. Many senior leaders in America, they appreciated it. And then, so one thing that struck me when I came to America was how, again, egalitarian the culture was. In India, even if there is a senior devotee from our own generation, say like my Shiksha Guru, who may be five or 10 years senior to me, it's almost like you look up to him. But when I came to America, I was talking with um, Prabhupada disciples and they were so accessible and so friendly and down to earth. Right. <laughs> so it was quite, a, I came from a very conservative Brahmacharya ashram with a very hierarchical structure yeah. and I was exposed to the egalitarian culture. It was quite a, quite a, a revealing experience for me. Mm-hmm. So I, I had to very broadly reconceptualize my conceptions of my understanding of what Krishna consciousness meant. You know, I was giving a class in a Western outreach center and I, there was a nice question answers. There were boys and girls. They all asked questions. I answered them. And they answered, they asked some questions uh, after the class. Some of them came privately and talked. And the preacher who had organized that program, uh, who was the organizer of that center, he was also there. And he's a senior Prabhupada disciple. So after the program, he told me that, uh, that you can, you, might, you will be able to do quite, if you spend time in America, you can contribute to Western outreach quite a bit. You'll be helpful in that. You will be effective in that. I says, why Why do you feel like that? I thought maybe he said, my question answers were good. My presentation of philosophy was good. 
so he said that you know you are not uncomfortable around women right now when you said that yeah and i first my first reaction was is that a appreciation or a criticism <laughs> <laughs> wow interesting so 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 the point was that because they the boys and girls they were all asking questions and i tried to answer them as much as they could yeah so so what he said is that actually to some extent uh, in india gender separation it's quite natural and especially in india monks they even indian women understand monks you have to keep a distance from them but if if especially anybody in the audience feels that you don't want to be with them say yeah. if a preacher is answering a question and if a woman is asking the question and you just feel that you know you just want to end the interaction move ahead then they, that alienates them a lot so he said i didn't sense that in you so in that sense it's appreciation so it is curious what he appreciated specifically <laughs> very interesting what so, other what other struggles were there in understanding like the western culture when you're interacting with them so much you know going traveling all over the place what other kind of observations did you make yeah i would say they they fall in three different categories first is of course the gender interactions i remember i was in a college program and then there was this uh, girl she asked a question why do religions fight among each other so then i answered a question elaborately and she, uh, i could see she was quite happy with the answer so after the class she came and she said you know this question has been burdening me for so long for so long i'm so grateful that you answered this question can i give you a hug <laughs> now this was something just unimaginable for somebody for me coming from india fortunately it happened after a couple of years i was there so right. over a couple of years i had realized that you know for in the west hug is just a expression of affection it is and there are different kinds of hugs also which mean different things but yeah. still you cannot say no and the same way you cannot say yes right. so i did a what to do so then i just turned toward the the preacher would organize the program he was also an indian i said you know you, i just indicate to you help me so he helped me but in an entirely unexpected way he said that you know actually he's a monk so on his behalf you can hug me <laughs> he told that guy it's <laughs> <laughs> so funny <laughs> and then, that was not end of it his wife was there so he says i am his wife on his behalf you can hug me <laughs> Wow. Was the, was the girl so, satisfied with that? Yeah, yeah, okay. That's been why both of them they gave a joint hug to her and I smiled. I was this. So, nice. I would say a lot of experiences with respect to gender interactions that was primary. But overall yeah. it struck me that uh, that people were very very uh, earnest in their spiritual search. So for example, you know sometimes and i would go to colleges and speak uh, now i have not uh, i visited colleges in india india still is conservative although it's changing but still significantly conservative so sometimes uh, some of the boys and the girls would be very very scantily dressed right and yet at the end of the class when they would come and ask questions they would have such serious questions so it started i i realized that you cannot judge people simply by 
the way they are dressed or their externals. Now, for them, that dress might just be a normal part of their culture. And that their dress is not a statement about their spiritual interest or spiritual lack of lack of spiritual interest. So the idea would be the default conception would be that you know, if somebody is flaunting their body like this, they are so much in bodily consciousness. What what interest they would have spiritually? So, but it was not like that at all. So I started realizing that there are so many cultural assumptions which we superimpose on spirituality. That that means a particular person dresses in a particular way. That means they are not really spiritually interested. Or how can they be spiritually interested? A particular person dresses in a particular way, they must be spiritually interested. It doesn't work like that. So that's why I said that uh, I had to broaden my understanding of what Krishna consciousness was significantly. So one was, so first was with respect to, I could tell a lot of stories like this about gender interactions. But the other, <laughs> the second, and I would say significant aspect was that, that when we present spirituality, it is, this is something which I had to learn by experience that quoting scripture does not have the same weight with Western audiences, especially new Western audiences, as it has with Indian audiences. In India, if you quote scripture, oh, you are so learned. But in the West, if you quote too much, or too, not in the West, to a Western audience, you quote too much scripture, it actually can be a disqualification. Can't you think for yourself? You're just towing the party line. So they would like it that you draw wisdom from an ancient tradition. But you you present the wisdom. Don't just quote it to me. Don't just parrot it to me. Yeah. So, so that again, it is not. So in one sense, we may say that uh, we are presenting wisdom from an ancient tradition. But that does not give credibility as what we speak, how we make the message intelligible to people. So that is also a reflection of the individualistic ethos. So we could say India and Eastern cultures are a little more community-based and West is much more individual-based. So again, I don't want to generalize because there are India is complicated, West is also complicated. But in general, it is uh, people are not interested so much in are not in, not interested, they are averse to religious organizations and religious hierarchies. They are interested in spiritual individuals. So it is, it is not what you quote or where you come from, but it is who you are. It is how you address issues, how you answer questions, how you interact. That is what shapes people's receptivity. So in that sense, we can quote authority, but Quoting authority is no is no guarantee of earning authority. It is authority has to be earned, and it's a it's a slow, painstaking process. That is one of the things that I uh, learned. I would say so. Say one is in terms of interacting with people. The second is with respect to presenting things. With respect to you know what we focus on, what is that we can't just quote authority. That was second. And, I, and third, now again, I could go into many things, but third was uh, the focus of what we present. The ISKCON conventionally has focused on the ontological aspects of spirituality. You are not the body or the soul. That there is God and Krishna is God. Hmm. And uh, so basically the nature of, like earlier I talked about the spiritual truths, that there exists a soul, there exists God. And we, need, we are his servants, things like that. 
but overall in the west it is not so much philosophical spirituality as applied spirituality okay if a soul exists how does it make a difference in my life if god exists if there is ultimate reality how does it make a difference in my life so in that terms of applied spirituality so applied spirituality means i found that the biggest domain for presenting krishna consciousness broadly i found that a four domains where i see the rising of sattva in the western world so one is the domain of mindfulness psychology basically the domain of the mind there's a lot of trouble and distress at the level of the mind and that is where people are open to not only open actively seeking uh you could say um, non biological solutions i don't want to take chemicals to heal my mind uh, is there some other way so meditation yoga mindfulness spirituality this is where people are open the second is <clears throat> environmental consciousness <clears throat> there also again science is there but there is something more than science required to actually change people's way of living so that's why and third is um, with respect to yoga so and fourth is with respect to veganism so basically if you see all these four nobody is concerned about god and soul but all these four are ways in which we are functioning in the world uh, how do i take care of my body how do i take care of my mind how do i take care of the environment how do i interact with other life forms so veganism basically so these if we can present our wisdom our traditions wisdom in a way that makes a difference to people's current concerns that is where we will be able to reach out to people mm, addressing so, their their current concerns mm, that's that's really good so so what happens with respect so addressing now we may say isn't this always required yeah it is but if you consider say for example indians in america now again i don't want to generalize at all see indians have a religious instinct quite quite a strong religious instinct so for most indians you don't have to tell them why to practice bhakti so after spending some time in, in uh, a significant amount of time in india dealing with skeptical questions and then in america dealing with skeptical questions i realize it's a huge difference in india actually we are not creating faith people already have faith but there are some intellectual reservations they have because of their education because of their contemporary culture so we just remove the obstacles for them to act on their natural faith now we remove obstacles from them to act on their natural faith so Uh, that means most people i don't know how it will be one or two generations later but most people have had parents or grandparents going to the temple most people have had homes where there's some kind of altar some festivals are celebrated and there is an overall religious instinct so in india it's almost as if we are just removing the coverings on faith so that people can act on their you could say natural piety or natural faith whereas in the west we have to in one sense create that faith <laughs> so so that's a very big challenge so for example in the west when people go to a temple why or india also why people go to a temple they understand that that 
that there is God and I should be worshipping God. And okay, there are many temples. Which temple do I feel good? Which temple is the best for me? And they'll go there. So we, it's a natural acting. But in the West, so religion or connection with transcendence is not an intrinsic concern. That instinct is not there so much. And if it is there among people, those people will mostly go to the religion of their birth, religion of their parents. So if people have a natural religious instinct, they will go to Christianity or Judaism or whatever. Yeah. So when will they explore other traditions? Gener unless they are exceptional seekers on their own. Now, there are a few seekers who are like serious seekers, but they're not many like that. And we cannot have a movement catering only to say extraordinary seekers like I described in Journey Home, they were on search. If you have to reach to a broader audience, we have to address people's current concerns. Mm. So how to go about doing that? So I found that talking about the mind and uh, uh, you could say virtues, about values and virtues that can help us manage our mind, help us improve our relationship. So this is not just self-help. Self-help sounds a bit too utilitarian. So, but we need to present applied spirituality. So um, if we do that, then there is a, we can connect with people. If we present direct spirituality, then we can't connect with people much. And when we talk about applied spirituality, maybe I will share one diagram. See, we also may talk about applied spirituality in ISKCON. Yeah. But when we talk about that, what we mean is applying spirituality is, is you should chant Hare Krishna and you come to the temple and you should worship, uh, you should worship the deities. Right. But that is not what people have in mind when they talk about applied spirituality. For them, applied spirituality means how can I become more tolerant and forgiving? Or how can I become more forgive? How can I forgive others? <laughs> how can I find a more meaningful life? How can I find more meaning in my life? Right. So, or mm, how, how can I find inner satisfaction? How can I be equipoised amidst life's ups and downs? So those are their concerns. So let me show you here. Okay. Here. So, here, so we can have three approaches to spirituality. One is textual spirituality, where say, for example, now I have also taught Bhakti Shastri and we can go deep into Shastra. You know. What does this verse exactly mean? Oh, this Acharya has given three different meanings of this verse. And why does this verse come after this verse? What is the flow of this chapter? For those who have already accepted a tradition, accepted a text as sacred and precious, Textual spirituality is enormously appealing for them. Hmm? Then there is traditional spirituality. By traditional spirituality, what I mean is that each tradition, various traditions across the world have their own praxis, their practices by which one can grow spiritually. So in our case, when we talk about applied spirituality, what we are talking about actually is traditional spirituality. So associate with devotees, read books, chant the holy names, worship the deities. This is traditional spirituality. And you could say applied or applicational spirituality. That's a, a third circle. So this is where, how can, I, how can I be more peaceful? How can I have... There are two, three concepts which from the Bhagavad Gita which people can relate with, Very people want to understand. Say for example, one is Samatva. How can I stay equipoised? 
how can I stay calm and composed in life's ups and downs? Then another is antah sukha. How can I find inner happiness? How can I be even thoughtful people, even, even if they live in a materialistic society, sooner or later they realize I, I can't just depend on others for or externals for happiness. So how can I find inner happiness? And the third is compassion. How can I how can I see others in a more holistic, non-judgmental, spiritual way? And that comes by Panditaha Samadarshinaha. See everybody equally. So these are what people are concerned about. So to the extent we can present our spiritual wisdom from an applicational perspective to address people's current concerns. So to that extent, they can take it up. And um, uh, maybe a fourth point I will add is that you cannot expect or demand commitment. That is something very important. That it's... Um, See, the, the way I used to, we used to do college preaching in India is we have a retreat and then after a retreat, you know, therefore, we are so fortunate to have the opportunity to chant the holy names. So how many of you start 16 rounds after this? And right. then maybe 50% would raise hands and then 25% would raise hands. You know, how many of you start eight rounds? How many of you start four rounds? And people just take it up. Uh, but we cannot do that in the West. It is, it is, it has to be very gradual. So let people come at their pace. So I felt that people people are interested, but if we if but if we don't present properly, then we'll alienate a lot of people. Yeah. So I could go on in that direction, but these are the broad things I felt. I guess the gender differences, the authority differences, the yeah. focus differences, and the expectation differences. Thank you so much. I, I guess a question from for me would be that doing all this and getting all this experience in, 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 you know, outreach and in the U S and everything, what was your end strategy in strategies, maybe a bad word, but what is your end result desired result when you meet someone like, and you're only there for like few minutes or 30 minutes or whatever the talk is like, what's your, what's your, what's your goal there? Okay. See, I see myself uh, as a sharer of resources for raising consciousness. Wow. So I I don't <laughs> so oh. I don't see myself as a preacher of a particular organization. I don't see myself even as so much as a teacher of a particular book. Yes, I am a member of a particular organization. I teach based on a particular book, primarily, but I see myself primarily uh, more than that as a or fundamentally you could say as a as somebody who's offering others resources for raising their consciousness so now it's up to them how much they take the resource and how much they raise their consciousness mm -hmm. so i was in alachua in alachua we have a many we have a very uh, very good community of uh, devotees uh, mostly Shri disciples and others also so this might seem self-congratulatory, but I see it as the mercy of my spiritual master and senior Vaishnavas who guided me in this direction. So I gave a, a seminar, I gave a three-day course over there. And one Srila Prabhupada disciple, Mataji came with her daughter. He says that, you know, my daughter doesn't like to attend any programs. But she, before you came, she had heard a couple of your classes on YouTube. And she had attended the full course and she wants to say something. So she was maybe a teenager, 
15-16 or something like that. And she said that, you know, I have never heard such a non-judgmental presentation of Krishna consciousness till now. So I I felt quite grateful to hear that. So the point is that uh, if we there's another preacher who told me this. This is in India. He said that uh, you know your classes are not contaminated by any management agenda. I said, what do you mean by that? <laughs> it's a funny appreciation. But what he meant was that, that I am not associated with any particular project. I have never been a manager. I've always been a writer and a teacher. So I don't need my audience to do something. Generally, if a preacher is preaching in a particular temple, they want manpower for the temple. I'm not saying that that is wrong. Right. They want manpower for the temple. And they just not, not just human resources for the temple, but they actually want the human resources to cooperate with their vision of how the temple should go. But that is not something which uh, I have ever needed. And I'm not, I'm not in any way uh, judging or criticizing others who do that. Because they are also serving in their own way. And that's a valuable service. And for many people, uh, they would like it. Okay, you know, okay, I learned about Krishna consciousness. What should I do? Tell me now. A, B, C, D. And that's how they are structured. And when they have a clear trajectory, they can grow. For some people, okay, I will figure it out. Once I understand this, then I'll decide what I want to do. So... We need to have room in our movement, even for people who need that space to think and grow at their pace. So that is what I try to do. I try to offer resources for raising consciousness. Wow, I really like that. I like that story about the, it seems that a lot of young people will pick up on that immediately. If there's some kind of judgmentalness or some kind of agenda in what you're saying, even devotee kids will pick up and that'll that in itself will turn people off it's yeah, very interesting um let's talk a little bit about uh your the love that you have for bhagavad gita and your daily writing of uh, i don't know what you said it's 200 300 words or something or 600 words of of, of daily gita realizations that you email out to i don't know how many people do you have on that list yeah, okay. Hmm. See, I was always a good reader. As I said, I like to read books. And I always had a desire to write. Yeah. Uh, before I was introduced to Krishna Consciousness, I didn't know what to write. So I didn't have so many ideas to share. Once I started, uh, started practicing Krishna Consciousness and started sharing, then I started writing a lot. So I've written about 25 books till now. Around 2011, I had a fracture. I fell and I had a fracture the same leg where I had polio. So for some time, it seemed I might not be able to travel again much. Fortunately, I recovered and I've been able to travel reasonably. But so at that time, I needed some engagement. Yeah. So I had been exploring various things. So I had not, um, that was the time when I had, internet had started becoming big in India. And I started ex exploring how uh, outreach is done online. So one thing I noticed is that there are many Christian preachers who send daily messages, daily passages based on the Bible, not just quotes from the Bible, but their reflections based on the Bible. There are quite, a, there are at least a dozen I found who have rooted in the Bible. There are at least uh, half a dozen who do it on the Quran. But I couldn't find a single, not just within ISKCON, single teacher, but even in the whole Hindu world, who actually shared wisdom in a written form on the Gita every day. Mm. So I started talking with 
the different senior devotees and many many who were very effective teachers of the bhagavad gita but they all were busy in their own way and i suggested to them generally in our movement there is one thing whoever is the giver of the suggestion has to become the implementer of that suggestion also <laughs> so so then i got blessing some senior devotees and i decided to myself attempt it so i so basically i tried to write a 300 word meditation on the bhagavad gita every day i take one verse and i try to explain it in a contemporary applicable way so i try to do two things you know logical and practical there's a logical flow to it whatever i'm saying and then what am i writing and something some practical understanding and application so i was not sure how much i would be able to write but by krishna's mercy since 2011 i have been writing more or less every day so we have more than 4000 articles on the gita on the gita daily.com now and uh, we have about uh, 6000 subscribers by email about uh, 15 20000 subscribers on whatsapp the gita daily facebook page has a gita daily gita daily facebook page has about 700000 followers uh, but that doesn't necessarily 700, mean that many 700000 Uh, that many people have liked it but that doesn't mean that many people read the gita daily but that's great it's still amazing so see what happens is the written format like videos are relatively easier to watch yeah. the written format requires a little bit more application and effort to read and uh, i I'm, i'm not giving uh, motivational messages alone mm, it is more of uh, understanding of the gita so right. what i found is that if you consider the genre of self help in many ways christians were the pioneers for presenting spiritual help from a religious perspective dale there was norman vincent peale who wrote the power of positive thinking if you read the bible there is not much self in it there is quite a bit of help in the sense that there is not much self knowledge it bible may talk about the soul but it doesn't talk about the nature of the soul at all the way the bhagavad gita talks about it and there are verses in the bible which uh, which can be motivational which can be inspirational somebody is in fear somebody is in uncertainty you may i'll walk through the valley of death but i'll be protected by god stay still and hear the words of god i have plans for you to prosper you in future there are many quotes like that but if you look at the bhagavad gita if you want to ask if if somebody asks you can you share a inspiring verse from the bhagavad gita to me for me now if that person is a entirely new person You really can't quote a verse from the Gita. Yeah. The Gita, there are many verses which are inspiring, but the inspiration becomes evident when we understand the worldview of the Gita. So the point I was making is, if you consider self-help in the Bible, there is help, but not much self. In the Gita, there is self, but not much help. So unless you fully understand the self, unless you understand the worldview of the Gita, it's difficult to take verses from the Gita and. Uh, and see them as inspirational so how we could take the self and show the help based on the knowledge of the self that is what i try to do through my gita daily articles and i have several courses on the gita also i have bhakti shastri course for those who are serious students of the gita there are i think the mind was the one of the first online courses so there are 108 classes on the all 700 verses systematic study of the gita then i have done a gita light course which is also available on my website brief introduction to the gita then i done a 52 session gita key 51 session gita key verses course and i am planning to do many more courses on the gita explaining things from various content explaining how the gita can be approached 
from contemporary perspectives. So what I'm doing, if you consider Gita to be the center, then what are contemporary concerns? So the Gita from an environmental perspective, the Gita from a mindfulness perspective, the Gita from the perspective of, as I said, equality, equality of vision. Nowadays, we should not be judgmental. We should be egalitarian. So Gita from that perspective. So I, that is my long-term vision. I've been writing articles in these con on various topics in Gita Daily, but I'm now planning to move, make various uh, courses which connect with the Gita. So the Gita will be like the node and address various contemporary concerns based on Gita wisdom. Wow. How do you not repeat any ideas that you, like, how does it always, I know it says, you know, it's always fresh wherever you bite it, it's sweet, no matter where it is. But as far as like the concepts that you come up with relating to the Gita, how do you not repeat anything? Yeah, I wouldn't say that I never repeat anything at all. But I do try to make sure that uh, there are some amount of fresh insights in every article. Mm -hmm. uh, two, three things. First is that uh, you know, about writing, it is said that if you steal from one author, it's plagiarism. If you steal from a thousand authors, it's creativity. <laughs> <laughs> so what that means is, I don't know if I'm Krishna conscious or not, but I'm definitely Gita conscious. That means whenever I read anything, especially whenever I, in my Gita Daily articles, I try to have as much as possible some memorable play of words. So for example, in 1858, I wrote an article that we may, we may have to live with pain, but we don't have to live in pain. Mm. So with pain, but not in pain. Or on 1716, I wrote an article that uh, it talks about inner satisfaction that we can't always be grateful for all situations, but we can be grateful in all situations. So, <laughs> so like that, I try to play with words. So for example, we are all parts of Krishna. So be a part of Krishna. Be not apart from Krishna. So <laughs> apart and apart. <laughs> so in fact, based on the Gita Daily articles itself, uh, I have published two books, which are basically three six. Each of them are three sixty five quotable quotes inspired by the Gita's wisdom. Mm. Those are probably among the uh, the most widely distributed of my books. So basically, I try to have some play of words. So when I, whenever I'm reading anything, hearing anything, or even articulating things. So at that time, uh, I, if I, anytime I come across a striking uh, word usage, a striking turn of phrase, I try to see how it can be connected with the Gita's wisdom. So I generally recite the Gita regularly. So at least one chapter daily or whatever. So the Gita's verses are always there in the background of my mind, you could say. And whenever I see some striking turn of phrase, I try to connect it with the Gita verse and then present the wisdom, present the two together as an article. So oh. overall, it's, crea it's creative. It's, it's sometimes demanding, especially I'm traveling and I have many programs to try yeah. to come up with the article. But it's Krishna's kindness that I have been able to write. And uh, 
there has been a, re a reasonably good response. Many devotees have told me how <coughs> reading the Gita, that two, three things. One is that by reading Gita daily, they started appreciating how the Gita is, is relevant to their lives. Because many of us may feel that the Gita is a little bit philosophical and the Bhagavatam and the other books are more relishable because there are pastimes from which you can do practical lessons. But the Gita is also having a lot of relatable wisdom. That's one thing. Another, some devotees have told me that when they have gone, they're going through difficulties, especially relational difficulties or difficulties with the mind. I write a lot on the mind. 6.5, 6.6, 6.25. Those are the verses on which I have written the most articles. So, <clears throat> 6.25, 26 also. So, so they say that especially then dealing with issues, mental troubles, they found that quite helpful. So that way I'm trying to do some service and Krishna is reciprocating, devotees are finding them helpful. New people are also connecting with it. There are quite a few uh, Christians who read the Gita daily. Really? And they say that, yeah, <laughs> they subscribe for that. And they say that you know, it's the one, one person, he's actually he's a, he's in Europe, he's a reverend. So he wrote to me and he told me that you know, almost 90, 95% of what you write in Gita daily, I can easily connect with that. Because it's something similar to what I read in the Bible, but it's it's articulated in a different way. So wow. again, it, uh, so again, see, I'm I'm not. If you talk about those three circles, no, textual, uh, traditional, and applicational. So this is more of textual and applicational. So it is not that at the end of the Gita article I says you should chant Hare Krishna, you should worship the deities, or it's not that I'm not saying that, but that is not. It is okay. This wisdom, if we understand. Those will be the natural results, yeah. but this wisdom, how we can, uh, how we can use it to infuse our life with virtues, and we can find uh, a direction, a compass in our life. That's what I try to do with the Gita. I think that sometimes devotees don't want to admit that in different places, according to time, place, and circumstance, there's a there's a way to communicate with people that you can they can connect with. And I feel like you've kind of cracked the code there with, with uh, I guess a Western audience that, you know, because sometimes the the idea is that okay we just do what you know Shri Prabhupada's program was it's the Harinam and the Prashadam distribution the Sunday feast which is amazing and that's how that's some people do connect with that for sure still, but there is something to say about meeting people where they're at um whether it be a young audience or uh you know more progressive audience uh and 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 not trying to like the things that you you just mentioned like not trying to exactly you know chant Krishna and worship the deities but apply you know give them resources of upliftment like you said and kind mm. of give them those resources and things i think that's really really brilliant and i think a lot of devotees can benefit from hearing your experiences and try to even take that and use it in their own way in their own outreach of krishna consciousness yes so i mean you made a very important point that i won't say i have cracked the code but at least i recognized that right. we have to spend time not just speaking to the audience, but hearing from the audience. Yeah, that is singular. So as much as I try to follow, is that you know, on the class, Vyasasan, on the class, you speak, but after the class, hear, 
hear from people who want to talk with you, hear from the organizers, try to understand the context where people are coming from. That's very important for learning. And uh, now we may say, we will just do what Prabhupada did, but that is an oversimplification because Prabhupada himself didn't do one thing alone. At a very dramatic level, if you want to see, the way Prabhupada did outreach in America and he did outreach in India, there's a huge difference. Prabhupada in America was basically, basically not just chant Hare Krishna, but basically it was like move into the temple. That was the main outreach. And it worked dramatically at that time. We had what Hagaru Prabhu called the Hare Krishna explosion. But when Prabhupada came to India, he, his Western disciples created a sensation. He along with his Western disciples created a sensation. But practically no one was ready to move into the temples in India. So Prabhupada himself devised an entirely different program. And that program was life membership primarily. Mm. That basically Prabhupada would go to different Indian people's houses, take some prasad, give some class, and then they would contribute for building temples. They would give a significant contribution. That was a life membership program. And they could come and stay in the temples. Now, even some of the people who, say for example, the Juhu Temple was one of the biggest projects, the toughest projects, because not necessarily the biggest, the toughest projects where Prabhupada faced very severe opposition. And there are many life members who helped Prabhupada in an enormously, uh, you know, in enormous ways. At the same time, there are no interactions. Now, I had talked with uh, Giriraj Maharaj, I talked with Radhanath Maharaj and others who have interacted with these life members they, afterwards also because uh, they were in Mumbai. So most of these life most of these life members, they were already they were already from a pious family. Many of them already were initiated disciples of other gurus, and most of them were you could say from our perspective Advaitic or Mayavadi gurus. But Prabhupada did not make issue with that. Prabhupada did not even demand that you should chant Hare Krishna to them or chant sixteen rounds or become initiated. So Prabhupada engaged them from where they were. So he just encouraged them. So Prabhupada himself did different things at different times. Very different things, you could say. So if I consider, you know, in, in India, if these two in West, becoming a devotee meant moving into the preaching meant getting people to move into the temple. Yeah. In India, preaching meant getting people to contribute so that we could build temples. So now if we consider our movement, most of our movement is neither here nor here. Not at the level of making life members who just give some donations. Not at the level of having people move into the temple. Most of our movement is somewhere in between. That is the congregation. Congregation is people who are much more dedicated than life members. They're not just giving their money. They want to do other services. They want to themselves practice bhakti. But most of the people who are coming into our temples, very few of them have intentions of moving into the temple. Even moving into temple even for a short time, what to speak of lifelong. <laughs> so in one sense, you know, we are in uncharted territory right now as a movement. Uncharted means Prabhupada, during Prabhupada's time, only these two were there. The idea of a congregation, nowadays we have weekly programs. And it's very common, you know, okay, we have weekly Bhagavata class, not just in temple, but in the different devotees' houses or different people's houses. So actually, it was, I think, the first, the concept of a weekly program at somebody's house that first happened in 1983, if I'm not mistaken. In all of Prabhupada's time, there was no concept of a weekly program. 
you do a one-time program in people's house and then they come to the temple and in the temple there are regular classes say every evening bhagavata class and ultimately the expectation of people will move into the temple so yes uh, diff- not only different places uh, have different needs but you could say even different times have different needs so we as a movement are in a very different time from what it was during prabhupada's times so of course prabhupada has given us timeless principles which we which we need to share but we need to share them intelligently so in a way that we attract people toward krishna and not uh, push people away from krishna mm. so this is something which uh, maybe i'll just speak i'll take a few minutes to speak this this is something which when i travel uh, i meet how should i put it politely i a lot of people who are casualties of preaching come and meet me yeah. <laughs> really? casualties of casualties of preaching means you know you know uh, so for example i was in america in one city and this husband came and met me and he said that his wife was a follower of some other spiritual teacher and that's her family has been following for many generations not many generations at least two one or two generations their whole family is a follower of that teacher and they came to a particular program and there was one preacher who came and spoke you know that particular teacher if you follow him you will go to hell now she felt so it was not just offended it was just uh, devastated practically wow so so and now the speaker who spoke this i know that you know that speaker is a senior devotee in our movement and he's also dedicated in his own way and his mood is that you know prabhupad said one moon is better than a thousand stars ekash chandras tamohantri chatara sasrasha so we want one person who is ready to give up all misconceptions and just surrender to krishna and he says i want to present i want that person and maybe their intentions are good but we have to also consider the effects the effect is that unfortunately we may be looking for one moon but actually whether we find the one moon or not we end up extinguishing a thousand stars so <laughs> yeah true that's unfortunate so that's why when i said that that providing resources for people to raise their consciousness if somebody wants to come to the level of becoming a moon that's wonderful but if somebody wants a star and this that star can light can be little little brighter that's wonderful also yeah no if somebody is just a again i don't we don't want to refer to people in abstract ways but if somebody is just a stone and there somebody but that's hidden the star the luminosity little little spark comes out that's also good so so when i talk with that uh, i talk with the husband and then we had long talk and he brought his wife and i talk with her also and the first thing i did was apologize to her you know that you know that whoever spoke like this they don't represent the movement per se there are don't reject the moment just because of what you heard from one person yeah and also then i explained that um, two things basically when i deal with uh, the casualties of preaching uh, first is that ultimately it is not your it is not your relationship with the institution or with a particular member of the institution is your relationship with with the ultimate reality as you conceive it and this moment has provided thousands of people we could say millions of people resources for developing that relationship so you can rather than rejecting the moment based on one particular experience 
or maybe two three experiences also see the resources that you can find which help you to raise your consciousness and to develop your relationship with ultimate reality and those resources are available and they are available in a very very broad gamut that's the first thing and second thing is that it's uh, we also as a as a movement we can say that uh, uh the capacity for honest self criticism hmm, that is i would say it's not that it's not there but it has it it is developing and uh, so things are not black and white things are not black and white and uh, what i mean by black and white in this case that's obvious statement you may say but the key thing i realized is that that uh, you know we often reduce people to abstract philosophical categories but people are conscious persons who have many dimensions to their being what i mean by that is that say if i say somebody is somebody is following a mayavadi guru and therefore we say they they are mayavadis not really now they may be they may be following a mayavadi guru but actually they may not even know what is mayavad and they may follow that guru maybe because of that person's personal charisma maybe because that person's center has a nice cultural atmosphere maybe they are going there because they just like to like the spiritual people over there so philosophy is only one aspect of why people go to a tradition so right. when we reduce people to a philosophy oh you are following this preacher so that's why you are a mayavadi well that becomes a that we are reducing people to categories so that is that is a dangerous thing to do so rather than reducing people to categories if we see them as individuals and okay so if somebody so the what i try to do is somebody says i am following a particular guru i am going i am following a particular teacher yeah so what i would say is that yeah you know in in a, in today's world where most people are materialistic it's good that he has spiritual spiritual interest and inclinations yeah. so what about that particular teacher attracts you and then once they start speaking that but they also feel valued okay you're not rejecting what i am doing and then when we understand what about it about that particular spiritual path or spiritual teacher or spiritual uh, book or whatever it attracts them then we have the opportunity to show them how that can that is available even within krishna consciousness yeah so i think that black and white approach is 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 very dangerous is is quite uh, we end up alienating far more people than we attract and uh, krishna consciousness in my understanding at least we would have reached far far more people if we have if we have a less confrontational approach and a more of yes <laughs> true thank you so much uh, chaitanya charan prabhu um i really love the points you're bringing up there at the end about black and white and less confrontational it's very valuable and i think Devotees can learn from that for for sure. So, if you want to get in touch with Chaitanya Charanpur, he has a number of websites and also a Facebook page. So let's start there. Facebook page, facebook.com/slash/chaitanyacharan. He has the podcast, as I said, uh, which is called the Monks Podcast. You can find that there on that Facebook page, and you can also find it on YouTube um, under his YouTube page, Chaitanya Charan. and then he also has this um website the spiritual scientist.com 
And then I was I was tickering earlier at the bottom, uh, the GitaDaily.com. So this is how you can get in touch with Chaitanya Charnaprabhu. He has so much content that he puts out, and you can take advantage of it on Facebook, YouTube, via email as well, WhatsApp even. I'm sure there's instructions there on the websites on the website. Um, Chaitanya Chandraprabhu, thank you so much for joining me. I really enjoyed our, our, our conversation and I enjoy learning from you. Uh, it's always a pleasure. And uh, you, I love the way you categorize things like, okay, you know, there's this one step to third step. And then there's, I love that. And, and it shows your, um, your, your, your depth of, of knowledge and thinking. And, and I love that uh, uh, so much. Thank you so much, Prabhu. Appreciate it. Thank you, Prabhu, for inviting me. And thank you for your very pertinent and uh, you could say very uh, pertinent as well as thoughtful questions. And of course, before I end, I would like to express my debt to you. My, as I said in the beginning, my Monk's podcast is a spin-off, I could say, from your no. uh, podcast. <laughs> so I, I watched some of your podcasts and said, this is a brilliant idea. And then during the lockdown, when I was not traveling, when I was to travel, of course, I used to give, uh, give classes, but I also used to meet many senior devotees and that would nourish me. So mm -hmm. I thought that virtually I'm giving classes. So why not? I also get association. But then that's how I thought that I could start the podcast. And by Krishna's mercy, it worked out quite well. So I focus more on, uh, you could say, you told me that your thrust is the, is the story behind the person. That's yes. what you are. So yours are more of, you could say, human interest. Yeah. And yeah. you get a very diverse panel of participants you get. I focus, I'm a more, you could say, intellectual person. I live in my head a lot. So I focus more on issues right. and discuss. But the whole idea of the podcast, you are the pioneer in that. And, I'm, oh, and so I would much. express, like to put on my record, my gratitude to you for oh. having started that initiative and given me the idea and inspired me and thank you for inviting me all the very best thank your you podcast so much. also i see your some of your podcasts you are quite expert in diffusing volatile settings <laughs> i don't know about that expert, expertly taking things forward so all the very best thank you thank Prabhu. you so much Prabhu. please stay on i'm i'm going to turn off the uh, recording thank you everyone for joining if you like this podcast please check it out on youtube and facebook um and all podcasting platforms Hare krishna and have a great rest of your evening Haribo. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna.